Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. All right, welcome. Uh, we're not doing the kind of show we typically do on Monday for a series of different reasons, including the fact that I'm theoretically leaving on vacation right after the show, uh, but also because I really wanted to spend uh, a little bit longer uh, on this particular guest and on this particular book. Uh, it didn't seem like a good idea to rush through this. And so joining us today is uh, Jessica Fector. Her book is called Stir, My Broken Brain and the Meals That Brought Me Home. Uh, I should say, and I'll, we'll mention this uh, several times tonight because your interest in attending will theoretically grow, uh, that tonight uh, she'll be at Bethel Temple uh, at, uh, uh, what time is it? Do we know? Do we know? 7 p.m. 7 p.m. Uh, 7 p.m. 7, 7 p.m. And um, this is an evening of healing in honor of Rabbi Ilana Garber. Uh, and you can find out a little bit more about it at Sweet Amandine, which is uh, Jessica Fector's, Fector's blog. So, uh I want to quickly set the stage. Uh, this is the first time I've ever met Jessica Fector in my life. However, her uh, uncle and I were very, very good friends in high school. Uh, I know her grandfather. I knew her grandmother. Uh, they are from a wonderful and interesting family uh, here in Connecticut, uh, although her growing up and, uh, and adult life have, has happened in a whole bunch of other places besides Connecticut. But you're kind of back in town today anyway to the house where uh, or to the town where you, you went to visit your grandparents to talk about this book. And it's this is a, a remarkable and interesting book. It's a very different book. It's the kind of book I was thinking that I had a, the experience at least once while reading it where the pages kind of stuck together so that it was sort of like the doctors sawed through my skull and, uh, you know, went into my brain. And then I sort of turned the page and it says it said, you know, something like uh, put the dough on a flowered surface, surface and roll. The pages are kind of stuck together. So I went from brain surgery to a recipe or something like that, because, in fact, this is in part your story uh, of your recovery from uh, a terrible problem with the brain aneurysm and the food that that I don't know, sort of made up the backdrop of all this. So and there are wonderful, at least very interesting recipes. I haven't made any of them yet. I will make some of them, though. Uh, and uh, so I'm going to let you I'm going to stop talking. Uh, I'm going to let you tell us what happened to you in August of 2008. You were in the best shape of your life. So you thought you were on a treadmill. And what happened? Right. So. Um, so, as, as you you uh, correctly said, stir is the story of my recovery from a ruptured brain aneurysm when I was 28 years old, and how I reclaimed my life and myself through food and cooking. Um, and the story begins um, the summer of 2008. I was at an academic conference um, because I was in the middle of a, a PhD program at the time. Um, and I went for a run one morning. I was actually supposed to be out uh, along the country roads in rural Vermont with a friend of mine that morning. Um, but we woke up to some thunder and lightning. Um, and so very fortunately, we, we went to the conference center gym instead. And I was running, running along feeling just fine, which is um, typically the case. I, I believe that most brain aneurysms are not symptomatic before they rupture. Um, and all of a sudden, I felt um, it wasn't 
a pain. It was more um, a, a little click um, in my in my head. Almost uh, the sensation was something like um, a bead of sweat rolling along uh, towards the back of my head, only on the inside. Um, and I immediately knew that I was going down, um, fainting. I, I reached for the for the stop button. I, I don't know if I managed to hit it. And I woke up on the floor um, in, in terrible pain. This started a whole series uh, of events. And um, in it's you're an unusual case of kind of seesawing back and forth between lucky and unlucky, right? You're lucky you live. Most people that this kind of thing happens to don't live. Uh, you're um, lucky that you had basically a, uh, what seemed to be a successful surgery initially. And then this whole cascade of setbacks, right? I mean, this... This, I, I, I was trying to figure out exactly how long the kind of sufferings of Job that, that happened in this book span. It's more than a year, right, of just sort of— Yes. So let me see if I can put together the timeline as I explain what happened. So um, so I, I collapsed in August of 2008, and um, there was a surgery to repair the ruptured brain aneurysm um, I, at the hospital up there uh, in Burlington. And um, the surgery was indeed successful. I was extremely lucky in that I had no cognitive or neurological uh, deficits uh, after after that, uh, resulting from the hemorrhage or from the brain surgery. Um, but when I woke up from that surgery, I realized that I was blind in my left eye. Um, and I remember thinking at first, oh, my eye must be bandaged up and reaching for my eye and blinking and feeling my eyelashes on the palm of my hand and realizing that, in fact, um, no, I was I, I was blind in that eye. Um, and that's because the, the left optic nerve had been compressed during the surgery. Um, so there was another surgery to uh, decompress the optic nerve, um, and uh, the the uh, the result was that I I did recover the smallest sliver of vision in my left eye. I see colors and shapes, but mostly it's uh, it's just black in that eye. Um, and uh, then um, you know we kind of thought, okay, this is what the recovery is going to look like. Uh, six to eight months, we were told to recover from the hemorrhage and the surgery. Um, and I was told, actually, and this has been the case, that my brain would remap um, so that one day I would barely notice the deficit of the um, of the, the the missing the missing vision in one eye. Um, and uh, so I came home from rehab just to regain my strength, get a sense of my body in space with the altered depth perception. Um, that's actually the biggest, um, the biggest deficit that I noticed missing that uh, the vision in that left eye. Depth perception in close range is a binocular phenomenon. <laughs> and so um, for a very long time, I would take a sip of tea and try to put down my mug and it would crash to the floor because I would miss the table. Right. There's this um, there's kind of almost agonizing scene uh, where you come, you come back for, uh, to your apartment from the hospital and trying to make a cup of tea. Exactly. And, and right. you can't gauge anything. Right. You can't gauge where the teacup is, where the, nothing is where it's supposed to be. Right. Um, but coming home from, from, from that, you know, we thought, okay, this, this crazy thing happened, this terrible thing happened, but we had a sense of what the recovery would be. Um, and then um, a week or so later, I developed a high fever and my head and face swelled up um, and we discovered that it was because um, there was an infection in the bone flap. The bone flap is the piece of bone that they saw into and remove in order to do um, open brain surgery. Um, it was uh, a devastating infection. Again, um, my life was in danger and I ended up back in the hospital in, um, in Boston. 
I, I should say I was living in Cambridge, Massachusetts at the time um, with my husband of, um, of not yet three years. Um, I, I mentioned that I was a grad student. We had just um, begun, thunk, uh, begin thinking, begun thinking about starting a family, um, and um, there I was now battling this infection. And in fact, the infection was uh, so severe that a piece in the tissue surrounding my brain and in the bone flap that the the bone flap um, became um, so diseased that they actually had to remove it and throw it away. So there I was. Uh, now, with um, uh, if you if you a dent in my head, if you imagine a um, a basketball or a soccer ball that gets a little bit deflated, and you punch it with your fist, and it uh, maintains that that dent, that's exactly what I looked like. Um, and the idea was that they would keep it out for a year to make sure that the infection was not lurking anywhere, and then they would do a cranioplasty um, with a prosthetic piece of skull to put me back together. Um, During which time you had to wear a helmet, too. Yes, and it was actually a hockey helmet, a medically prescribed hockey helmet to protect my brain. Um, And the one other thing during that time was that uh, when when I woke up from that surgery, they had gone in and scraped out the infection, and then they would treat treat it uh, moving forward uh, with with strong IV antibiotics. But when I woke up from that surgery, um, I realized that I didn't have my sense of smell. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, and I was actually told that uh, it would probably not recover because those nerves rarely do. Um, but in my case, um, the, my, my sense of smell did and did, did return. Yeah, and we're going to talk a, a little bit more about that smell thing in the, the second segment of the show. And I do want to say that we're sort of doing the book a disservice right now because it just sounds like it's this, this recounting of gory and gruesome medical travails. And, and there's certainly plenty of that. And if anything, you're kind of almost underselling the misery that you went through, especially during the infection period. That just sounds, you know, just sort of in and out of emergency rooms and just, just terrible stuff. But this is actually really... Um, a very heartening story of love and family and support systems and especially food. As I say, food runs all through this. Um, as I was reading the book, too, I was thinking that uh, my friend David Pudlin, who's Jewish, uh, after he read my memoir about my father, he said, I can tell that you're not Jewish. You, This is a family memoir. You go 75, 100 pages at a time without mentioning any food. Um, and uh, But you, you're the opposite. I mean, this is and, – and so this is – I found the book to be actually very uplifting. I, I think – there's many things about your story that make you a person to be envied. You clearly have an absolutely wonderful uh, husband uh, and and the cutest falling in love story. You take us through uh, <laughs> the cutest falling in love story imaginable, except possibly your Uncle David's falling in love story, which is hard to beat. Um, and, uh, I mean, this is a story full of warmth, stories about your mother, your father, your stepmother, the food they cooked, the support you got with from, from friends. I mean, it, 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 as harrowing as it is, um, it's mostly a story about what bumps up against that. That's right. And, you know, it's, it's interesting that you, you say this is not uh, really uh, an illness and recovery story, or at least not only that. Mm-hmm. Um, because when I first started thinking about uh, if there was a book here that I wanted to write, um, I really I, I pushed back against that idea that, that I, had a, I had a memoir of illness and recovery to write. Because to me, that's not necessarily a story. What mm. happened to me um, getting sick, almost dying, and, and coming back from that, that, all of the medical details, the gory details, as you said, these, that's not a story to me as much as it is. Um, these are, it's, it's a collection of plot points. Mm-hmm. Um, the situation. And 
in order for me to to feel like I could actually write a book that I wanted to write and that I hoped that people would would want to read, I had to figure out, okay, but what did I what did I learn from this? And um, and and what was it that actually moved me from 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 point A to point B? Um, and the answer in my case was was food was was getting into the kitchen. Um, and it was only when I when I framed the the project of of writing stir uh, for myself as um, an examination of why food matters um, generally to all of us and and specifically to me in that time. Um, that was when I really got excited about about getting the story down on the page. Yeah, the the food in the book is, uh, I mean, it's a character all by itself, and it's a really big character, too. I, I want to say a couple of things. While I'm saying these things, can you um, just grab your copy of the book and go to page 69? There's a paragraph there I want you to read. But while we're doing that, I'm going to say that uh, we'd love to have you call it. We're live here in the afternoon. The number is 860-275-7266, just like it always is, 860-275-7266. You can tweet us at WNPR, Colin. It's actually page 68. I was wrong. Um... Or do I have it marked pro- improperly here? I'll f- I will find this anyway. Oh, no, here it is. It's on page 69, and it's uh, just so you can locate it. Uh, it's the where it says, I breathed in. But before we get there, I want to say you can tweet us at WNPR Colin. Our tweet master, Greg Hill, is here. You may tweet us your questions, your comments uh, at WNPR Colin. This is, I, I thought this was a really remarkable paragraph. I really do think you're a really good writer. Uh, and, um, you know, this is when you've just come out of the first surgery, I think, and you're kind of wondering. You've even said to your husband, if I am not me anymore, you know, walk away, go away. You know, if I'm not me, if I if, – because you, you wonder when somebody's cutting into your brain, are they going to cut out the parts that, part that's you? So this is you kind of waking up and realizing uh, that uh, – well, what you realized. Go ahead and just read that paragraph. I breathed in, acutely aware that I could – And when I exhaled, I felt a rush of gladness as though a dam had broken. My own conscious mind surged out from wherever it had been, filled me to the brim. I could hear my thoughts again, that familiar internal voice, the one that chirps away at each of us, narrating narrating our every move. I could hear it. It was me. I was me. There would be test upon test later on designed to uncover any cognitive or neurological deficits, tests that would confirm what I already knew right then. In all the ways that mattered, I was fine. I thought there was a great uh, explanation of that, too, or, or, an expl- or a description of something that can't really easily be explained. And it made me wonder. This is something that I've been kind of obsessing about for about a year now. Um, having been through this, so there are, are these incredible biological intrusions into your brain. Your skull gets opened up three times. Um, And, um, you know, there's a constant conversation going on in the scientific and philosophical community about where's the mind? Where does the mind live? Where is the mind? You know, you say your mind kind of came forward from wherever it had been. So there are people who basically believe our mind, our consciousness is absolutely biological. Anything that is happening is a bunch of cells and fluids and electrical impulses and anything we can't explain about that, we just don't know enough to be able to explain it. Eventually, there'll be a medical model that explains everything. Then there's this whole bunch of other people who says, well, no, absolutely. We really can't explain what consciousness is. And and knowing more about the brain may never help us because there may be things about consciousness, about our mind, about the thing that makes you, you that are so elusive that they resist ordinary physical biomedical explanations. So you have a unique perspective on this, uh, having had your brain kind of physically messed with a few times. Did it make you come down on either one of those sides? 
Well, I guess what I would say is that I believe in science, mm. and I believe that there is great mystery inherent to science. Mm-hmm. Um, which I suppose is, I suppose what I'm saying then is a, is a little bit of both. Yeah. Um, I think a lot of people are going to wind up there. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're talking to Jessica Fletcher. Uh, Jessica Fletcher. Yes, she will solve some murders here later today. I bet I'm not the first person to do that. I'm talking, we're talking to Jessica Fector. Her book is Stir, My Broken Brain and the Meals That Brought Me Home. Um, I guess people probably want to know, you know, how, how, how you are now. I mean, you went through an awful lot, and I don't want to— I don't think there's a real spoiler at the end of the book anyway. Um, uh, At the beginning of the book, you're actually a very uh, aggressive runner. You're really starting to discover running. You've been doing tackling hills in Central Park and things like that. Um, I know eventually you you get back to running anyway, right? That's right. Um, I get back to running with, of course, um, lugging along with me uh, all of the trauma that comes along with having almost died (laughs) while running. Um, And I write about that uh, some in the book. and um, yes, I mean I, you're, you're correct. I don't believe that there is a spoiler here. In that uh, this is this uh, book really is about the journey. Um, I am now. Um, it's how old am I? I'm 35 now. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, my husband and I are still married. We have two um, daughters now: a three and three quarters year old, um, and a 15 month old. Um, and um, Yes, uh, because I had no neurological or cognitive deficits, I I, I um, was able to return um, to, to work to, to writing, obviously, um, and um, I, I can I can exercise and and I was actually I was told by a couple of neurosurgeons because it's a hard thing to believe even when somebody tells you you're totally fine. It's mm-hmm. really hard to believe. Um, uh, that that's the case when you've been so sick and especially at such a young age when really one moment I was. I was at the the, the pinnacle of, of health, um, but uh, I had a couple of different neurosurgeons uh, tell me, "You can think of this as as if you had been hit by a truck." Um, it's in my case because I don't have other risk fa- risk factors for um, brain aneurysms because they do not run in my family. Um, I was I've been told that I can think of this as just a a, a terrible fluke, mm-hmm. um, and I, I'm I'm in the clear. I mean, I think it's what comes across in the book, though, it's very, it was very difficult. I would have found it almost impossible uh, because to, to go back to doing things and to maybe be bold enough to have children and to start running again. There's a great scene where you're out running uh, in New York and you're, or, or in, maybe in Cambridge and you're looking around, I guess in Cambridge, and you're looking around and thinking, okay, so if I collapse right now, who would probably come help me? Is mm-hmm. it that guy on the bench? Maybe he's a doctor, That's right. uh, the person with the dog. I mean, I, I would find that because, in fact, you had to- been told a few times, okay, you're basically fine. You're on the road to recovery. You're on the mend. And then you wound up in these other terrible circumstances. I, I'm enough of a somatic neurotic that it, I don't know that I'd be able to start running and doing yoga and stuff like that. It must have been hard. Right, very hard. I mean, as as I write... The hardest part for me during those months when I was when I was so sick, um, it was actually not the moments when my life was most in danger. It was not when I was told um, that. In fact, I can go back to something at the beginning. Um, I was in the emergency department at the hospital um, in uh, in Vermont, and 
I, they knew at that point that there was blood in my brain. They didn't know that there was um, that there had been an aneurysm that had ruptured because they they couldn't see it yet on the scans. Mm. And uh, a a handsome young South African doctor came over to me and was explaining my situation. And I looked at him and and I said, "Could I die?" Mm-hmm. And he looked me right in the eye and very bravely said yes. Mm-hmm. And you would think that that would inspire some kind of fear or anxiety, but um, f- for some reason, I, I just, um, I heard it a little bit differently. I felt I felt relief. Um, I think because in my mind, I was thinking, okay, I, I might have died, um, but now I'm here, mm. right? It, it, it didn't really hit me that, uh, that, that it was actually a possibility that I wouldn't be okay. Um, and what was actually the most uh, stressful and and um, just terrible for me was, as you say, um, this, you're okay, you're not okay, this back and forth, um, you're fine now, really you are, and then another surgery. Um, and, um, and as far as, as getting my, my confidence back in my own body, um, that, that took a lot of time. Right. There are at least one or two scenes where there are doctors almost kind of arguing across your body about what is wrong with you. I mean, there are... You're sort of hearing their confusion and uncertainty. Right, and during the opinions. infection stage, yeah, right? I, w- I would have found that very frightening. <laughs> like, decide something, please, right now. All right, so we're going to move a little bit away from the medical details in the next segment uh, because one of the things that this book does very well, life is made up of details. It's made up of physical details. Uh, this book, uh, which is full of flashbacks to earlier points in Jessica Fector's life, uh, to, as I said, falling in love, starting her life out in various places, in Seattle, in England, in Israel, and then fast forward to Berlin. It's, it's like a Robert Ludlum novel. It's uh, She's all over. It's like the born identity, except with an aneurysm. Um, <laughs> no, no, it's not like that. Uh, but we're going to talk a little bit more about um, some of those physical details, some of the things that make life life, which are so well handled in this book. So let's take a break. We'll come back after this. Cerebral cortex has four main lobes with names from the nearby skull bones. Frontal does the thinking, occipital deals with vision, parietal senses, objects, and temporal listens. I furnished my one-room apartment off the sidewalk. I found an ebony table carved in old Madrid. Corner of Church Street and V.C. I found an overstuffed easy chair and one crystal jar with a silver lid. I did. That's Andrea Marcovici. That song started to echo through my head a little bit while I was reading Stir by Jessica Fector, uh, My Broken Brain and the Meals That Brought Me Home. It's m- more about food than it is about furniture, but it's also... Um, she has a nice touch uh, as a writer for those physical details that make up life. And you really do see the story of this young couple making their lives uh, as they finish college, begin graduates to a school. They're sort of spread across in different places. Uh, they're, they're sometimes separated by great distances. And, but there's, as they come together, the making of their physical life, uh, I, I found very real and very touching. It just was a sort of a nice window in sort of how somebody, how many, somebody builds their life with or without these, uh, these 
hurdles, uh, these unusual hurdles that you had to go over. Um, so um, we got to talk about food, right? Yes. <laughs> well, we should say that um, in addition to this book, and uh, you have um, a blog. Say what the blog is called. Um, sure. The, the blog is called Sweet Amandine, and it's sweetamandine.com, mm. um, which I actually started during this period of recovery. Right. Um, and, uh, yeah, you, you, you see it uh, begin to happen uh, on, in the book. And maybe we'll come back to that in just a second. But I want to give uh, the listeners a sense of how evocatively you do write about food, uh, even something as simple as toast. This also will help us maintain our national reputation for toast coverage among public radio stations. Um, so uh, there's, uh, yeah, well, you know where the paragraphs are. It's the bottom of page 110, if you're following along at home anyway. Yes, uh, my order came there. Oh, yes, so, yeah. so this is, okay. we should set the scene, which is yes. you're in Cambridge, you've, you've kind of, you're discovering Cambridge and all the wonderful things that it has to uh, offer, and you discover this bakery that you're absolutely in love with, and one of the things you that makes you love it is right on the menu where an entree, a breakfast entree would be, it just says toast. That's right. Um, I had just moved to Cambridge, was exploring the neighborhood, that thing we all do when we get to a new place and start kind of mapping out our new homes um, based on the, the places uh, that are going to become our, our regular um, our regular spots. Um, and this, uh, this bakery is called High Rise Bakery um, in Cambridge, Massachusetts. My order came out in a paper-lined basket, one thick slice of yeasted cornbread and another from their Huron loaf, baked with whole wheat flour and sprouted wheat berries. Toasting here wasn't a hasty pass through, through a heated oven, but a thorough browning of crust and crumb. The surface of the bread had gone crisp, sharp even, along the edges, with enough moisture left inside to lend some chew. Nestled into one corner of the basket were a triangular wedge of European butter, the kind with the highest fat, and a small cup of the bakery's homemade preserves. This was toast as it is meant to be, its own thing, a main event. <laughs> so uh, if that's how it, which, what she can conjure up about toast, imagine what she can say about more complicated dishes. Uh, and so food is very important to you, and you're um, a serious cook with, you're the kind of serious cook who insists that you and all the rest of us have oven thermometers because, in fact, sometimes what our oven tells us the temperature is is not really quite true. Uh, I learned a lot about ovens reading this book, and that especially down around 300, the oven may have no idea about whether it's really 300 or not, and that you, you tend to weigh things rather than measure them in cups. I mean, you're that kind of cook, right? Well, um, I would say I would say I'm a serious home cook, mm -hmm. and if I am, you know, that kind of cook, as you put it, which I assume you mean kind of an anal retentive cook. Well, I would never um, be so judgmental. Well, I, I mean, I, I can say it about myself. I think <laughs> I think it's mostly that I'm just a pretty anal retentive person, and so that uh, carries over um, into baking, which I love. Um, but mostly, I just feel like, you know, if you're going to if you're going to spend the money on ingredients and you're going to spend the time baking. Um, if there are a few little things you can do, like like weighing your ingredients, making sure that your oven is the temperature you think it is, then go ahead and do it so that you, you get the results that you're hoping for. Right. And th although this book is very serious about cooking, it's not serious about cooking in a super obnoxious foodie way. It is not above putting a package of uh, onion soup mix uh, into, into something. Um, <laughs> That's right. Um, yes, I would say that with the exception of one cake, um, something I call the Cleveland Casada cake, which is a, a layer cake with... Um, with strawberries and custard, um, that that is a multi a multi step recipe. It takes a little bit more time, 
Um, just about every other recipe in this book, um, you can make it with a handful of, of ingredients. Um, I, I don't like fussy cooking, um, mm. and I think that the recipes here uh, are the kind of the kind of things that even if you've never stepped into the kitchen, you'll you'll be able to make them and have success. Uh, there, I think there's a lot of cooking wisdom in here, and a lot of it comes from your various mentors. And I don't even remember which mentor it is. It, is, it might be your step, stepmother right. who um, teaches, who tells you among other things that. You you have more things in your kitchen to make a meal than you think. You have nothing to cook with. I, I had somebody who sort of taught me that, too, sort of right around the same age, too, that uh, was the mother of a friend of mine, and I would go and stay at their vacation home, and she would invite a lot of people on the beach to come up for, you know, cocktails and snacks. And and I would think, there's nothing up there. There's no food there. Yeah. But there was. There just, like, there was stuff, you know. You could make it. You could, And she would just sort of look and rummage around and, and make those things, mm-hmm. and it helps you sort of relax a little bit about the cooking. That's right. I, I remember when I was, I, how old? an adolescent maybe when I first discovered Alice Waters, the great Alice Waters, and um, and read somewhere um, uh, something about um, her her belief that, that the best food is food that tastes like itself. Mm-hmm. And I thought, Alice Waters, that's Amy. You know, that that's my stepmom, um, my stepmom, Amy Thompson, who, who, who really um, taught me that at a very young age. Um, and I, I think the kitchen is where she and I, um, when I was um, when I was a little girl, it's where we really started to become family. Um, something that I write about in Stir is that um, baking with my mother, which I love to do, um, and she, you know, we had we have our, have our own um, history of, of great times in the kitchen. Um, me stirring. Uh, brownie batter and her saying, you know, don't forget to keep it in the bowl. Um, But baking with my mother was always, um, we, we weren't doing it because uh, my mother loved to bake and she baked all the time and it was something that she did that I was joining her, um, jo- joining her um, in. Um, it was, it was, uh, a special, a special occasion. It was like let's let's do this special project together, and it may be um, some other project, or it could be baking. Uh, with Amy, she was the first person I met who would see a recipe for a cake, let's say, in the newspaper or in a magazine, um, and decide to make it not because it was somebody's birthday or a special occasion or a dinner party, but just because that's what she did. She thought it would be uh, something fun, mm-hmm. something something nice to do. Um, and so my baking with her was really Amy letting me into her world and this thing that she did. Um, and um, that was very special for me. The um, food tells a story about culture, too, about where we come from, who we are. Um, and that's there's a lot of that in this book, too. And so I was learning about um, dishes that I never even heard of. Um, so there's something called, I, I hope I'm saying it right, cholent. Cholent, is that how you say it? Yes, so cholent. A stew called cholent. So, and, and the story of why cholent exists is really fascinating. So uh, tell that part, why, why there is something particularly in in orthodox jewish communities called cholent. Sure. So um so cholent is a is a a, a slow cooking long cooking stew of sorts. Um, and it's it's history. Um, so I should begin by saying that there is a prohibition against cooking on the Jewish Sabbath on Shabbat. Um, and uh, on the other hand, there's also it's considered um, a, a commandment. Some people uh, would say uh, to eat hot food during the day on the Jewish Sabbath. So, how do you get around that? Mm-hmm. Um, and the way that um, that religious communities um, 
have gotten around that is to make this chillant. My my uh, mother-in-law, it's her chillant recipe, uh, Sarah Schleifer, her, her recipe uh, that appears in the book. Um, her parents uh, were both from Poland. And um, she told me the story about how in her parents' community and many, many other communities as well, um, they would fill up their, their pots with potatoes and onions and whatever uh, meat they had, um, and they would carry, no onion soup mix there, mm-hmm. and they would carry the pots um, to the bakery, the, the, the town bakery. And the baker, um, when, when he was done uh, for the day and was closing down uh, before, before the Sabbath, um, would, would stack all of the pots um, from the, the households uh, in, in the town um, and close it up. And the oven would, would be off, mm-hmm. but the residual heat um, would be enough such that these uh, chillants, these pots of chillant would, would slowly cook overnight and then after synagogue services the next morning um the families would would uh, send one of their one of their kids probably to go pick up the chillant and and bring it home and they would have a hot meal on the sabbath yeah i love that story that whole notion of everybody in town bringing their pots over to the bakers uh, still warm and therefore cooking oven uh and the, even though that's a story from poland the word seems to be sort of a fusion of showed and long <laughs> right the, or is that a guess oh right I french mean, words meaning hot and slow yeah, so I think that uh, that actually uh, the 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 true etymology of the word I believe comes from um, has a Latin root um, mm. for just for warm, but. Um, I believe, you know, I actually looked that up for the book and even wrote it in there, and now I'm now I'm drawing a blank. But I think that sounds right. Um, but I can tell you that there is this wonderful. Of course, I remember not the not the real uh, the real etym- etymology. I remember the the, the folk etymology um, that I found that I just thought was so lovely, um, which was that um, chulent, which is spelled in English uh, transliteration C H O L E N T. Um, in 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 uh, French, it's pronounced pronounced cholon. Um, and so you have the French word for warm, chaud, and long, which means slow. So this something that is hot that takes a long time to cook. So uh, Jessica Fector, Fector, I'll do this right at one point. Uh, Jessica Fector, uh, the book Stir My Broken Brain and the Meals That Brought Me Home. So this, there's something that's sort of about this book that's sort of Proust and anti-Proust, right? That you you can experience the world through an almond cookie, um, and then your ability to experience the world through an almond cookie becomes impaired. It becomes impaired partly because of anesthetics and things that, that, that happen that affect your sense of taste for a while, and then this loss of your sense of smell, which is almost inextricably wound up in our sense of taste anyway, your loss of smell. Um, if you wouldn't mind, just go into the book to page uh, 162. There's an incredible description on page 162 of something that most of us uh, will never experience, and that is smelling nothing, uh, just not really uh, having any smell. It's about three paragraphs wrong, l- long. It starts uh, soon after Amy left. This is uh, your description of what it's like uh, to smell nothing. Great. So this is just as my stepmom is leaving. I had a bunch of family members kind of in a parade of of generosity and love uh, coming to stay with my husband um, and me. During the beginning of my recovery, um, my stepmom Amy had helped me bake a pie at my at my request. Soon after Amy left, the pie came out and Ellie placed it on a rack to cool. I stared. Without its aroma, it didn't seem real. It was like seeing a picture in a glossy magazine or an image on TV. For a moment, I actually thought I could smell it, but no. My brain had been fooled by a lifetime of memories that knew just what the scent should be. This pie smelled like nothing. It's hard to explain what it's like to smell nothing. 
we have the word silence to describe the opposite of noise, the complete absence of sound. But what's the opposite of scent? As far as I know, there isn't a word for it. Smelling, is not, smelling nothing is not the same thing as not smelling anything. I think that's why I'd known right away that something in my nose had gone wrong. You won't smell anything in an odorless room, but you will still detect something inside of your nose, something you'd never notice, let alone think to identify as an actual sensation if you have never felt its absence. At least I never did. For a smelling person, air has weight. And while you can't smell weight, you can feel it. Much more so than the missing odors all around, the absence of this weight told me every day that my sense of smell had not returned. So really, um, uh, I never really had thought about that before. <laughs> so, And there's, a, there's a, a lot more in there about the sense of smell and the fact that, oddly enough, this is an experience that you've shared with your father um, for other reasons, lost the sense of smell. Yes. Um, wear so, helmets, everyone. Wear yeah, helmets. wear helmets. Yeah, everybody should wear helmets. Yeah, that's right. He had a Razor scooter accident. Yes. Yeah, that's right. Um, so we're uh, uh, as we wind down this food segment, um, you're about to clear up something that I've been wondering about since I was probably uh, in about seventh grade. Uh, and what is halva? <laughs> <laughs> the mysteries of, of the world. Um, so halva is, um, it's a, a, a sweet, it's a, mm. a, a candy that's made of, um, of sweetened almond paste. Uh, sorry, mm. sweetened sesame paste. Because mm. you do, do describe this thing you do, I think, when you're living in Israel where you're shaving it off. And I've been wondering that since, I, it's probably earlier than that, because in the old, old Mad Magazine, all the Mad Magazine writers were Jewish, and they would just sort of put that word kind of arbitrarily in the back of panels Okay, Colin, we need to get you some halva. Yeah, absolutely. Yes. All right, so we're going to take a break. We're going to come back with more of Jessica Fector after this. Today's show was produced by Colin McEnroe and me, Kyone Wolf. Our interns are Hallie St. Germain and Allison Ehrenreich. Greg Hill tweets for us at WNPR Colin, and the part of Bill Curry was played by Mario Batali. For show pages, articles, and videos of the Faith Middleton Show staff attempting to break a Guinness World Record for making and eating whole wheat chocolate chip cookies, visit our website, wnpr.org slash Colin. On tomorrow's show, in honor of Entourage, our show about bros. And now, back to Colin. Yes, I should say, I should reiterate, I'm going away for a while, so we are going to be dusting off some of our favorite shows. And I don't know whether Bros is one of our favorite shows, but because of the Entourage movie, which obviously is either celebrates the twilight of bro culture or the apex of it, or both, I don't really know, nor have I seen that movie, nor do I intend to, uh, but we thought, well, okay, maybe we should do the bro show again. You'll also hear, I think, a day or so later, the interview I did with Nancy Butler, um, uh, um, the pastor uh, who has uh, ALS. All kinds of things are coming up, and Mark Oppenheimer is going to come up and guest host a couple of shows. And So you won't be bored, I promise. We won't, won't let that happen. Uh, Jessica Fector is with us today. Now, now you're getting interested. So let me just say again, 7 p.m. tonight at Bethel Temple in West Hartford. She will uh, be, I assume, maybe doing some readings and some talkings and some things like that, right? Uh, and that'll be at Bethel Temple. And probably if you wanted to RSVP or something, you could call the temple, right? Would uh, that be a good idea? Correct, yeah, yes. Okay. So that's what I would do if I were you. All right. So um, one of the other thing that's ha the things that's happening here, and the book, by the way, is Stir, My Broken Brain and the Meals That Brought Me Home, is um, one of the ways that you 
at the end of these incredible travails, um, decide that you're kind of going to jump back into the world. Uh, is you decide to somebody suggests your friend Megan suggests that you start a food blog. You don't really you're not really sort of a bloggy kind of person, uh, <laughs> so you have to kind of educate yourself about this. Tell us about the decision to start Sweet Amandine. Sure. So um, a few months after I uh, was home from the hospital um, and I was still pretty sick from this infection, um, I. I started to get I started to have just enough strength to do a little bit more each day. Um, you know, this was after I needed help toileting myself and bathing myself and really, you know, just needed to rely on everyone around me. Um, and I I as I got stronger, my first thought was, all right, the the fastest way back to myself uh, will be to pick up exactly where I left off. And that for me meant studying for my doctoral exams. And I tried to open the books and dig right in. And for the first time in my life, um, I just did not connect at all to what I was studying. And I did that thing where, you know, you read to the bottom of a paragraph and then jump back up to the top and have to read it again. And I was falling asleep. And I was terrified. I thought, does this mean I am brain damaged? Or is this just the lack of concentration that I was told might stick around for six to eight months? Um, and meanwhile, I was experiencing this other kind of alienation, which was an alienation from my home. Um, I, um, I had I had always loved to to bake and to cook and just to 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 sit on my sofa, you know, in a in a way that a person sits when she's not feeling dizzy and nauseous and um, unsure of where she is in space because of depth perception issues. And um, I felt like I really needed to reclaim my everyday. Um, being able to exert my own preferences on things like making a cup of tea and, uh, you know, slathering toast with butter and jam, um, just these, these little things that were beyond my grasp. And my friend Megan, um, who is very wise and wonderful, um, she said, well, why don't you start a food blog? And I, um, this was the beginning of 2009, and oddly, I had, I had never heard of a food blog, um, although they were, they were picking up steam at that point. Um, and she explained to me uh, what was behind it. And um, one of the best things about this idea of hers was that it gave me a project because um, in, in general, whether or not I'm recovering from a broken brain, I, I tend to really need a project. Um, and this particular project, what was so great about it is that it allowed me to register the bits of normal life that were starting to sprout up again all around me um, and to start believing in them again. I mean, a moment ago we were discussing, um, Colin, this, you know, how do you really believe that you're okay? Mm -hmm. um, and for me, what I, what I was learning was that in the end, there was nothing a doctor could actually say to me that would make me believe it. I had to believe it by by feeling it. Mm -hmm. um, and and the way to feel it, I, I learned, um, was to reclaim my everyday and everything that it, it's not just a cup of tea, right? It's the um, it's it's the way we uh, we we grab that that mug. It's the way we sit and make a list of the things we're going to do for the day, and we dash out the door. It's all the life that goes around food um, that that writing this food blog. Um, it helped to reacquaint me with all of that. And there's a phrase that you used, uh, time in, uh, instead of time out. And you say in the book that um, it really wasn't the case that you could pick up where you left off or that you were going to pick up where you left off. You were going to go back to what you were doing exactly at the moment of the aneurysm, that that, that process, that time, that was irrecoverable at this point, and, and that you didn't want to recover it. You actually wanted to go into a different place. Right. I mean, that was an incredible realization and an incredible gift of, of writing and writing about food. Um, I, as the, it was a year that I was waiting for this, well, 
what I thought would be the last surgery. There is one more snafu, which people can, can read about. Um, what I thought would be the last surgery of getting my brain put, my head put back together. Mm. We called it Humpty Dumpty Day. And as that date was approaching, I suddenly, I started to feel this kind of nostalgia for the very moment that I was living in, which is a strange thing when you are physically, overtly quite broken um, and approaching a surgery that I had been longing for. Um, and I started to realize that... Um, you know, time didn't freeze when I fell off that treadmill, when that aneurysm ruptured, and neither had I. Um, and not only was it impossible to go back, but that I didn't want to um, because I had taken this this other this other route. Um, you know, it it makes me think of this conversation I had with um, with a neuropsychologist uh, at the rehab center. This was before the infection, just after. <laughs> only, I know the conversation you're yes, about to talk about. Yeah. Yes, o only a brain aneurysm <laughs> had ruptured at this point. And um, he's taking me through all of these different cognitive exercises. Some of them are um, really kind of <laughs> freaking me out, you know, asking me scenarios like, what would you do if, um, if you saw a toddler at the end of a dock, mm. um, a two-year-old, and you were walking alone in the woods, and he'd be completely straight-faced as I would try to answer him? And I was, you know, just thinking am I going to say the, the right thing? Um, and then second-guessing myself, you know, well, if I take him to the police, is that the right thing? If he has parents, am I a kidnapper? Um, and so, you know, we have this, this, this conversation that even while I was in it, I recognized was, was borderline comic. Um, and then he asks me with a completely straight face, why do you think this happened? Mm -hmm. And I didn't even understand the question because to me, I, okay, I thought he meant maybe, you know, medically, biologically, you know, there was a there was a an, an aneurysm, and the the wall got too thin, and it ruptured. And he just kept asking me again and again. He didn't want to lead me, because um, I think he wasn't supposed to. But why do you think this happened? Why do you think this happened? And finally, when I admit that I do not know what he is asking me, um, he says, "Well, some people believe um, that there is a reason that the, 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 that things like this happen for a reason um, that they can point to." And I immediately said, oh, no, I, I don't believe that. And this was actually a trope that would that would recur um, fairly frequently throughout my recovery. People saying to me, well, everything happens for a reason. Mm -hmm. um, and people, of course, have the best of intentions. It's usually followed up by, you know, the, the, the blessing that I'm going to find in all of this. Um, or but that when one door closes, a window opens. Or something like that. that. Yes, yeah. exactly. Right. Um, but, you know, I, I don't believe that. I believe just the first part. I believe that things happen. Mm -hmm. And then other, th other things happen. And then other things still. And uh, the, the reason, um, that's what we make of it. That, that mm -hmm. becomes the reason. Um, and so, um, you know, when people ask, well, would you have become a writer if this hadn't happened? I sure hope so, because I found in writing like the great, you know, love of, of, of my life in terms mm -hmm. of, you know, what I want to do. Um, but I don't believe that this was the only path to it. Um, but certainly it was the path to it because we can only take one path at a, at a time. Um, and and this is uh, th this is the way thing, things went for me. Oh, one, uh, there's a book by An Anatole Broyard called Intoxicated by My Illness. Yes, I know it. You know mm -hmm. that book. All right. Even that title to me is, it kind of gets a little bit about what you're talking about when you're sort of nearing the end of the illness and realizing that this, this whole set of things happened that were life-changing, you know, and they were things you would rather not have gone through, but they were things that you went through. And it's it's almost hard not to feel a weird kind of, nostalgia about right. it or because something. They, they brought me to who I am. Yeah. Uh, and it, that, that it is, it, it is, whether you wanted it or not, whether it made you miserable or not, yeah, absolutely it is. It's this thing that kind of changes the, the tracks of your life in a way that 
is going to be just unbelievably momentous. So, yeah, I get that. And I, I felt you being kind of almost a little bit intoxicated by your illness sort of at that point, you know. I wonder. I mean, I think for me it wasn't as much intoxicated by my illness as it was intoxicated by the realization that my kitchen had something to tell me and that mm-hmm. it felt good to listen. Um, and this this heightened awareness of um, of the power in – Walking into a kitchen and, you know, you, you have your pile of, of, of flour and your bowl of sugar and your dozen eggs and you get to take these things and you get to make something of them. Um, and th- that to me was just, um, you know, to, to, to get to, as I said, heighten my awareness of just why food was so important, why baking and cooking felt so feel so good generally and felt so good to me at that time. Um, that uh, was and remains a gift. Uh, if we had more time, which we don't, um, I was going to have you read this um, wonderful passage about sort of the, almost the perils of what you call aggressive gratitude. That, you know, you go through something like this and you feel incredibly lucky to be alive. Oh, my God, I'm so lucky. Every breath I draw is this incredible gift. Well, you can't live that way either. No, you In can't. fact, your goal has to be to get back to a place where you don't feel that incredible desperate gratitude. Oh, God, I'm alive. You know, that's no way to live that ultimately you want to live in a way that you can still get pissed off if you're in a long line or, you know, I mean, that that, that you can sort of accept life for the mix that it is. That's right. Yeah. Uh, I, I thought that was a very profound insight uh, in this book. Um, we're almost out of time. In, in 30 seconds um, or 40 seconds, maybe you can have. Um, have you, through the blog or whatever, started to hear from other people who've been on comparable journeys? I mean, is there are there other people who've been through this kind of trauma reaching out to you? Um, well, someone came to a reading, uh, the reading that I did in New York uh, last or last week, and um, he came up to the table and he said that when he was 16 and his older sister was 20, um, his sister died of a ruptured brain aneurysm. And um, that it was right around Christmas, um, and on Christmas Day, he woke up, uh, he and his father walked into the kitchen, and his mother was, um, she had been baking all through the night, and there were something like nine pies on the counter. And that he and his father, they they knew immediately what was going on. And his father just said, um, well, who would like some pie? Right, right, yeah. And uh, there's another person who gave you what would probably be a proprietary recipe for him because his father had died of an aneurysm, too. So there, That's right, yes. There you go. Well, listen, uh, the book is Stir, My Broken Brain and the Meals That Brought Me Home. Uh, it's uh, by Jessica Fector. And as I say, if this wasn't enough, uh, you could uh, get more. You could go to Bethel Temple in West Hartford tonight at 7 p.m., uh, meet her, presumably buy the book, get it signed, all those kinds of things that you do at book events. But thanks for being with us today. Thank you. And buy me one for five or ten cents I'll keep it till it's cooked